Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's Brian here. Uh, with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. And today we are going to do a little bit of talking about the ventilator. So, uh, Brandon, without further delay, I guess I'll kick it over to you and you can start us off with our scenario. All right, Brian. So you are in the ICU, as always, and you're coming on for a night shift when all good things happen. And um, you have signed out to one of your patients as a 54-year-old male. He has a history of alcohol use, uh, IV drug use, um, and was admitted with severe pancreatitis. He ended up in the first day or two getting intubated for hypoxic respiratory failure, and he's now at ICU day three. When you come across him, he's sedated on propofol at 40 mics per kilo per minute, fentanyl at 125 mics per hour. He's on the ventilator on volume control. He's tidal volumes of 400, uh, which is about six cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight. He has a respiratory rate of 14, a PEEP of eight, uh, an FiO2 of 60%. Uh, on his most recent chest x-ray, you see some uh, diffuse opacities, which look like edema or ARDS. So he behaves until about 11 p.m. when you get a call by his nurse, and he says that the patient has become tachypnic. So you go take a look, and you find him awake and sort of wiggling and restless in bed. Not really thrashing, but he looks uncomfortable. His respiratory rate is up around 30. Uh, and when you, you look at his respiratory effort, he seems to be making uh, more labor than you'd expect on the ventilator. He's sort of pulling and laboring to breathe, and there's paradoxical motion of his chest and his abdomen, um, meaning his chest and abdomen are moving in opposite directions. And when you look at the ventilator, you see this waveform in the first figure I'm going to show you. And uh, folks, I'm going to post this in the show notes, but if you can't be bothered to go and look at it, what we have here is uh, the pressure scalar or waveform on the vent. And instead of a, a completely positive upright uh, curve with each breath, it has a, a sort of scooped out or concave appearance. <clears throat> instead of being an upright hump, it's got a kind of hammock look to it. So the nurse says, uh, maybe we should increase the sedation, add another drip, for instance. What are you thinking, Brian, and what do you want to do about this? Okay, is he? what's his neurostatus like? Is he awake and following commands? Yeah, he's awake, and if you go and rouse him, he'll follow commands for you. Um, he looks, you know, a little distracted. When you leave him on his own, he's kind of restless and moving around in bed. You wouldn't really say he's agitated, but he looks like he's got something on his mind. Um, you know, perhaps he's delirious. Maybe he sees or hears things that we don't. Um, but he's 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 moving. So I think the first thing I would do is just sort of do a, a quick general assessment of him. Is he in pain? Is he um, you know is is there his sats are okay? Uh, if we have entitled CO two, is that okay? Um, you know, just sort of a quick estimate of his respiratory and ventilatory function. That's a great uh, start. Um, so he is satting well. It's in the high 90s, as it has been. You have a nice waveform on your entitled tidal capnography, and the number is um, around 25. Um, and he doesn't seem to be otherwise doing any differently than he has been. You asked if he's in pain, and he says no. Um, 
what else? You take a look at his foley, and that seems to be draining well. Um, you speak with the nurse, and they can't really think of anything else that would be bothering him. Okay. So one of the things that I frequently do, and now I spend a lot of my time in the neuro ICU, so um, we have a lot of patients who are on the ventilator not for pulmonary dysfunction, but more for um, airway protection um, reasons. So one thing that I will frequently do in situations like this is if it seems like there's some dyssynchrony between the patient and the ventilator is let the patient kind of do his own thing and see how he handles that. So I might put him in a pressure, su- pressure support mode um, and just see, can he maintain adequate tidal volumes and minute ventilation on his own? Uh, in other words, does he need a, a controlled mode of ventilation? Does he need a rate or does he just need some pressure support? Oh, Brian, I love it. So you do switch him to pressure support, and he seems much more comfortable on that. You have a much more normal-looking waveform, and he seems less agitated. So if we can just pause for a second here, I think this is a great example of a common form of patient ventilator, dyssynchrony, asynchrony, whatever you want to call it. These are just situations where the patient and the ventilator are not getting along. And What that always means is the patient wants something different than the ventilator is providing for them. And that could be any parameter of breathing. In this case, it's the flow. So this is a flow dyssynchrony, flow starvation it's sometimes called. The patient wants a higher flow than their ventilator is giving them. So if you imagine them kind of sucking at their breathing tube, the ventilator is trying to support that breath, but not as quickly as their intrinsic breath. Is this a bad thing? Well, it's bad in that it's uncomfortable, as you can imagine, if you're not getting the amount of air you want. It's uh, bad in that it confuses us, which I think it has some importance to it as well. Uh, Anytime when we look in a room and we don't really get what's going on, there's a potential for you to, you know, make poor decisions. Um, And there's a potential for lung injury here, because even if you have your ventilator set up in a way you think is safe, if the patient is sucking and creating negative pressure in this breath, they're inducing uh, regional areas of uh, elevated transpulmonary pressures in their lung. Um, in other words, if they're kind of really sucking hard, let's say at the base of their lung, even if the airway pressure and volume is something you think is reasonable, in that local area, there's a lot of wall stress across the lung parenchyma. It's hard to really prove all these things are important, but in a general sense, I think it's nice to avoid. And when you look at the ventilator, this is what you see. Instead of a positive pressure during the breath, As the patient sucks and adds negative pressure, it becomes less positive. It starts to scoop out that pressure waveform. And if they pull hard enough, they get to the point where they actually can make it fully negative. They drop below zero, and during this quote-unquote positive pressure breath, they're creating negative pressure. Probably not your goal if you're trying to rest them and let their lung heal. So, I love the idea of kind of turning things back over to the patient. If you're in volume control, which has a, a set fixed flow, you can always start by increasing that flow. It's just set on the ventilator. And I think everyone tends to set it different ways. Some places by default set it rather low. Let's say around 40, you know, 45 liters per minute. So if the patient pulls harder than that, they're gonna see this dyssynchrony. You could always go up 50, 60, 70, 80. There's almost no limit, whatever is comfortable for the patient. If you're unable to match the patient's flow because it's very brisk or say variable, 
you can go to a pressure mode because instead of a fixed flow, that's going to be a, a variable flow that the ventilator titrates to achieve the pressure you set. So in pressure control, for instance, you're unlikely to see flow dyssynchrony like this because the ventilator itself is titrating the flow. And it's very, usually very good at matching the patient's effort. Or you can go all the way to pressure support as you did. In the same kind of way, the ventilator is going to titrate the flow for you, and you've got a pretty good chance of matching their effort, I think. Now, could you sedate them and knock them out? You could. I think a very uh, blunt response to this. So, overall, I like it. I think a good re response to this one. Yeah, I think um, I, I think I, I see and hear a lot of that increase the sedation argument. Um, it's more of an old school kind of thought. Um, and also I hear it from, from folks who maybe don't understand the sort of subtleties of what's going on, right? They just, the patient's too awake. I hear, you know, I go up on the sedation, up on the sedation. Uh, obviously in the neuro ICU, we try to keep people as little sedated as possible. Um, so that's why I say, you know, this, this whole pressure support is kind of my go-to first. Uh, sometimes patients do need more sedation, but I find that that's, rarely maybe it's too strong but but less frequently is the is the real need yeah again um most instances of ventilator synchrony is the patient wanting something different than the ventilator is providing so not in every case but in many cases a good approach is just to kind of let the ventilator release the reins and let the patient drive as much of the breath as possible all right so in this case you make some tweaks you go away um, but you don't make it too far until you get called back to that room again. And you look at the patient, and they look similar. They look kind of uncomfortable and working to breathe. And you look at the ventilator, and in this case, you find that someone has actually put him back on volume control. But it could be much the same picture in another mode. And I'm going to give you another waveform here. And again, I'll try to describe it. But what you now see is the flow scalar or waveform. And you're seeing, with each breath, not a single peak of flow and pressure, but a, a double peak. You're seeing two breaths delivered for each seeming effort. And at the end of the second breath, while expiration begins, there's a little upright kind of positive deflection at the start of that expiratory waveform. So the nurse, who's starting to think you're pretty smart, looks to you and says, now what? Well, so firstly, I think maybe the nurse is putting too much faith in my intelligence, but uh, uh, it sounds like he's double triggering or um, it's terminating the breath too soon for him. Is that fair to say? Well, you, it certainly seems like there is two things when there should be one thing. Right. So looking at the waveform, it looks like the first breath, the flow tracing at least, doesn't, uh, it doesn't ever really get negative. So he's not getting good exhalation or, or he's starting to take his next breath before. So I think he's probably not getting enough volume. Um, again, going back to what you said, most asynchrony is the, the ventilator's not giving the patient what they want. Um, and in this case, I think he's not getting enough volume. Um, so I think the first thing I would do is maybe look at his title. You said his title volume was 400. That's what's set. Yeah. Okay. So I think I would, I would go up a little bit on his title volume and see if that helps. Um, just because 400, I don't know what size this guy, I don't know if we've talked about how big he is, but that's a 
reasonably small title volume for an adult male. Yeah, that's around six cc's per kilo. Yeah, if it's ideal. So I'd probably go up a, a smidge and just sort of, I, I would go up slow. So I don't want to, you know, hit him with a ton of volume all of a sudden. But I would go up slow and see if that improves things. Yeah, I think that's a really nice approach. So this is an example of, I think, the second of one of the most common forms of dyssynchrony. Uh, people will often describe it as double triggering or breath stacking, as you said. Um, fundamentally here, the dyssynchrony is one of the duration of the breath. So this is called premature cycling or short cycling, early cycling. Um, the inspiratory time that the, breath, the ventilator is delivering is less than the patient wants. So the patient wants to keep breathing after the vent is done. Now, you can also think of this as the patient wanting a bigger breath than the vent's delivering because they're giving pressure over time. So if we want to try to match those parameters a little bit, it's going to depend on the mode we're in. So if we were on volume control, this is a fixed flow over time. So to give a longer breath, we have to give a larger tidal volume, as you suggested. Now, you may not want to do this. We tend to like to limit people's tidal volumes because we think it's more lung protective, maybe more or less depending on the patient's pathology. Um, so you need to kind of decide if this is something you're okay with. If the patient wants a breath that's, say, 900 cc's, maybe you don't want to go there. And then your solution may have to be to try to attenuate the patient's respiratory drive with, say, sedation, maybe opioids to blunt that drive, maybe another sedative. Um, now, a reasonable increase, I think, as you were suggesting, I think in most cases is, is a good way to go because the alternative is a double breath. If the patient keeps pulling hard enough after the end of the breath, it's going to trigger another breath if you're in a mode like assist control. And that's what we have here. A patient's getting essentially two breaths for each breath, and your tidal volume of 400 is actually more like eight or 900. And I think we'd all agree that's not protective. So maybe going to, say, 500, if that can manage this, is better than that. Now, if you are in, say, pressure control, your inspiratory time is something you set. It's just on the ventilator. So you could increase the eye time. Really, the same effect is going to happen here, though, because a longer eye time is going to mean a larger breath. So again, you need to decide if that's okay or not. If you were in pressure support, as you've been trying to do, you could have the same problem, but it's not going to be as severe because if the patient prolongs the breath after the end of the vent support, you at least are not going to trigger another full tidal volume. So you can have premature cycling, but not breath stacking per se. If you want to manage that on pressure support, you just need to decrease the cycle threshold. Pressure support breaths end when the flow drops to a certain percentage of the patient's peak flow. So if that percentage was, say, 75%, the breath is ending pretty early. When you hit 75%, maybe you drop it to, oh, 50%, and the breath will be prolonged. The one uh, additional caveat I would mention here is that there's another almost unrelated phenomenon which can look like double triggering of the ventilator. And it's almost occurring in the opposite cases. Uh, it's described pretty recently in the literature. It's usually called reverse triggering, sometimes entrainment. And this is when instead of a patient effort triggering a breath and then another breath, you have a ventilator-delivered breath, which triggers a patient-initiated breath after. So the, the vent breath is almost stimulating the patient to take another breath. Um, they're not really sure why it happens. Probably something to do with 
reflex activation of the patient's diaphragm tends to occur in actually deeply sedated patients or even comatose patients. You could even be brain dead and have this occur. Um, but it's a little tricky because this is going to be patients who are really out of it, whereas double triggering is going to occur mostly in patients who have a vigorous respiratory drive. So in this case, you're going to have to recognize this patient is really out. I don't think they're triggering. And then you look at the vent and see that the first breath was not triggered by the patient. It was from the ventilator, whereas the second breath was from the patient. If it's a problem, you can, again, give the patient more of their own drive to breathe. You can go to something like pressure support. You can decrease the rate. Uh, you could try lightning sedation. And, of course, you can always paralyze them. Uh, I think, you know, I was talking about pressure support. I think you can use pressure support in a patient who can tolerate some pressure support almost as a diagnostic tool. Uh, maybe you have a patient who can't tolerate just living on pressure support for a while, but they can tolerate it for a short amount of time. Right, you put put them on pressure support and see what kind of volumes they pull when they're allowed to pull whatever they want, right? And in this case, you know, for example, that'll help you figure out, you know, is this a case they're not getting enough volume? If you've got them set on four hundred or four fifty, you put them on pressure support and they're pulling eight nine hundred, um, then that's that's pretty indicative that they need more volume. Now, like you said, I mean, just because they want nine hundred doesn't mean they should get nine hundred. That's you know, sometimes we do know better than them. Uh, in the, which case, I would start by decreasing the pressure support. And I've had even pe people down on five over five, or even you know zero over five, uh, if that's what it takes to get them to pull an appropriate amount of volume for what they're wanting. Right? Um, that may not be a good long-term solution, but I think it's it's sometimes helpful just to sort of tease out what's going on. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and this gets into sort of the art of it, right? Because you have to balance different factors. We like to have patients lightly sedated, but we like to have them breathing lung protective volumes. We like to support the breath so they're comfortable, but we don't like them taking enormous breaths and so on. So, you know, there's not a huge amount of guidance in the literature and so on of the exact right balance here. But at least if we know what the problems are, we can understand the factors. Right. I heard somebody say one time, when you're talking about patient ventilator dyssynchrony, it's a, it's a matter of matching the patient to the ventilator, right? And you can either make the patient breathe like the ventilator or make the ventilator work like the patient. Uh, and it's typically best to make the ventilator work like the patient, right? Supply what the patient needs and wants, get the ventilator to do that, that versus the other way around. Right. And that's why, you know, the least dyssynchrony you're going to see is in a deeply sedated patient with some exceptions like reverse triggering. If you paralyze them, there's hardly any dyssynchrony you're going to see. But it's also not what we're usually going for. <laughs> All right, so you make some tweaks, the patient settles, and you go off. But again, like clockwork, you are called back to this room. In this case, you look at the patient, and again, they look uncomfortable, but it's a little different now. On the ventilator, um, each breath seems to be kind of curtailed. It's, it's short and kind of erratic, and each time you look in the corner of the screen and the peak pressure is the same. It's 40 centimeters of water. The patient's tachypnic to almost 40, and now they're actually desatting. They're hitting around 90 from the high 90s they were at. What are you thinking now? All right, so the first thing I would say in a patient who's tachypnic and in distress and desatting, I would probably just take them off the ventilator altogether. Um, and manually bag them for a minute. That does a couple things. One, it removes the ventilator from the equation, so now I can figure out is the problem with the ventilator or with the patient. Uh, and two, 
it allows me to, you know, to, to sort of adjust the quote ventilator settings um, with that kind of art, right? That I can bag the patient in different ways um, and sort of get a feel for what, what needs to happen. Almost like a gestalt, right? You can sort of sense how the patient's breathing when you can feel the resistance uh, in the bag. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, you could argue that you can get a lot of this information maybe from the ventilator screen if you're a true wizard of it. Um, but there's just a, it's a different approach to be able to actually feel the breath and manage it on your own. So I think that's a great approach. And I think the important difference here from the earlier problem is, is that the patient is actually decompensating. They're actually becoming hypoxic. And so rather than sitting here and getting academic about it, we first need to stabilize the patient. And I absolutely agree. The first move in most cases is to take them off the vent and bag them. And in a way, this seems strange because you're kind of going downwards uh, in terms of high-tech interventions. Um, but it does some important stuff, like you said. It totally removes the ventilator and its circuit from the equation. So if there is an equipment problem, it's out of the picture. If it's a synchrony problem, it's out of the picture. It also gives you this kind of manual feel for the compliance, as you said. And again, maybe you can look at the vent and get that same picture, but this is sort of a tactile approach to the same thing. Right. The other thing I think you can do is I can, I can watch the patient and sort of breathe, quote, with them, right? When, when I see them make inspiratory effort, then bag and release and get a feel for that versus, you know, the ventilator is just going to sense and adjust according to algorithms. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to that almost like a gestalt, right? I can see and interpret what the patient's doing and sort of try to breathe with them partially just to sort of get them out of that hole, uh, but also then get a feel for what they need when we put them back on the ventilator. Yeah. And that's what, uh, I think is also useful about this. It's not just a kind of diagnostic tool. It's therapeutic in that the majority of patients who are becoming hypoxic can be addressed by maybe recruiting them, and bagging is really a recruitment maneuver. Uh, even people who don't do recruitment maneuvers on the ventilator anymore will bag, and really what you're doing is you're giving a much larger breath at a higher pressure than you probably were on the vent. Give a good squeezier bag, you're probably giving almost a liter of volume, and you know, who knows at what pressure. So you do a little bit of that, probably you're recruiting lung units that were not recruited, and then maybe you can go back on the ventilator. So it's a good response for common things we see like, you know, mucus plugging. You take the patient off the vent and you bag them for a bit, and they do feel uh, rather tight, meaning you have to squeeze harder than you, you might think you would in another patient. But their satin proves, you get some good breath into them, you put them back on the vent, and you're seeing the same problem. They start to desat, and what you're noticing is that they're actually getting very little tidal volume with each breath. The peak pressures are very high, and the breaths are only, say, 50 cc's, even though you have it set in volume control at 400. Any thoughts on why this might be happening? Uh, you said they were, they were easy to bag. You were able to bag. It, uh, it did take some effort. Okay. So I would probably, if there, especially if there's an inline suction setup, I would just run that down real quick and see if there's some sort of obstruction, make sure that there's no kink in the tube. So you do have, as most ventilators, uh, mechanically ventilated patients these days do, you have an inline suction catheter. So you advance that down the tube, 
um, and you find that there is not much resistance to it. You give a little bit of suctioning, but there's just scant secretions. They're just, they're just not getting volumes. Yeah, it just it seems like their compliance is just uh, extremely poor right now. Well, I don't know necessarily what the right sort of ventilator maneuver is here, um, but I've had this happen with patients before, um, and sometimes I will try a trial of sedation, uh, especially if it's a patient who's decompensating and not getting their volumes. Uh, a little bit of sedation, and even potentially a little small dose of paralytic. Uh, again, sort of removing them from the equation. And again, I would use that sort of only in a dire situation, right? If the not getting volumes and patients actively decompensating and we're headed towards an arrest type of situation. Yeah. You know, again, the the first move, I think, when there is some dyssynchrony with the ventilator is to try and figure out what it is. But it is true that most of the time you can manage it by making the patient do less. Um, so, you know, before, before or even while you try to get clever, I, I think it is reasonable if the patient's really having a hard time to try some sedation or certainly paralysis tends to improve things. And then you can try to troubleshoot the process. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a, um, an approach to this sort of thing because it, it's something that happens and it can be pretty serious when it does. You know, a patient who is stable on the ventilator and is now sort of crashing, not just looking uncomfortable, exhibiting dyssynchrony, but their you know, respiratory or hemodynamic status is really becoming compromised. And those who know me know that I am not a big fan of mnemonics, but one that I do think is useful is DOPES. And people talk about this for this specific situation, the crashing patient on the ventilator. And it is five maneuvers. D stands for displacement of the endotracheal tube. O is obstruction of the tube. P is pneumothorax. E is an equipment problem. And S is breath stacking. So the first move is to disconnect them and bag them because that addresses some of these on their own. By disconnecting from the ventilator, you take out the equipment, and by breaking the circuit, you manage breath stacking. So if they have so much auto peep that they're starting to collapse their own lungs, which can cause hemodynamic and respiratory compromise, just breaking the circuit, even if you didn't bag them, gives a chance for that to decompress. So occasionally you can even just try that on its own, pop off the vent, see what happens, pop it back on. Things like asthmatic, COPD patients, that's much more likely. But you take them off and bag them. That starts to give you a sense for compliance. You can recruit them and so on. Then you can start to go through these other issues here. For D, are you sure the tube is in place? If you have end tidal capnography, that's probably the best way. Some places are putting this on everyone. I don't know. Are you guys doing that, Brian? Well, most of, most people. Um, we, uh, for some reason, tend to have a um, supply-demand mismatch in terms of CO2, entitled CO2 detectors. Um, so I find myself sometimes in a room that just doesn't have a, mo a, a module to plug it into the monitor. Uh, but yeah, tip, I, I want it on everyone, if I should say that. Yeah. Yeah, um, we're the same. It's sort of most of the time. But really, this is the reason, I think. Sometimes people look at the number and try to use it as a surrogate for the PCO2 on a blood gas, which maybe has some use for. But the main reason is so you can instantly walk in a room Look at the screen and see a waveform with respiration, proving that your airway is in 
the lungs. Now, it is not a thousand percent accurate. Maybe your tube is right at the, the mouth of the glottis or something and is getting something of a waveform, but it's the quickest way to go about this. Um, other than that, you know, other methods like x-rays, bronx, just reintubating and so on. And, you know, never hesitate to pull the tube and mask ventilate and reintubate if they're really crashing, because at least you know how to do that. For O, obstruction of that tube, not that uncommon. Usually this is like a mucus plug. Um, running down a suction catheter, as you did, is probably the easiest way to find that. If you can't advance a catheter, something is in the way. Now, what it is, who knows? That's when you start thinking about maybe you can lavage it out of there somehow. Maybe you need to run down a bronchoscope and look at it and try to suck it out. Maybe you need to replace the tube. But that's probably the quickest way. And when you're on the ventilator, you can get some sense for this also by distinguishing from a high peak pressure versus a high plateau pressure if you're on a volume mode. You know, if you have a purely airway problem, you're going to see high peaks, but not necessarily a high plateau. Your lung is normal. Once you stop the flow of the breath, you have normal compliance of the lung. Versus a patient with high plateaus too. And now you're talking about something like, you know, just severe lung disease like ARDS. Or, you know, external compression of the chest wall, say from morbid obesity, that sort of thing. And then you have pneumothorax, which is kind of out of left field. But one of those things you don't want to miss because it's very treatable, but also very deadly if you don't catch it. So whatever your approach for diagnosing these... We all do x-rays. If you're good at ultrasound, that can be a great way to find pneumos and then treating them as need be. And then we kind of talked about the S for breath stacking. Um, should be managed by disconnecting that circuit, and then you have to go back to the vent and try to you know, adjust your settings to prevent it. One problem which I think is not widely recognized, and I only started to really recognize it the past couple of years, and now that I do, I, I see it all the time. And for how dangerous it can be, um, I think it should be more widely recognized. Um, I've started calling it peak pressure apnea because there's no real name for it I've seen. But this is this phenomenon that really comes from the ventilator itself. And what happens here is the ventilator has a number of alarms you can set you know, to alert you to dangerous things that are going on. And probably the most common one you hear is the high pressure alarm. Every time a patient coughs, for instance, you hear this go off. And what's confusing about this alarm is that you set a number, and when the airway pressure hits that, you hear an alarm. But it doesn't just alarm. In most ventilators, it also stops the breath. So this is a, a limit, not just an alert. So if you have, a, say, a volume control patient with a volume of 400, but during that breath, the airway pressure hits whatever this limit is. In a lot of vents, it defaults to 40. The breath just stops. It doesn't matter how much they've gotten of it. They might have almost received the whole breath, or they might have received almost none of it. The breath just stops. So if there is some process that is continuous, not just a cough, but something that is you know, adding to their you know, poor chest compliance, you may end up with every breath getting curtailed much smaller than you thought it was going to be. So you look at the ventilator, and now they're getting you know, 20 cc's per breath instead of 400. Essentially, they're almost apneic when you thought you were ventilating them. And this can happen from, you know, any number of reasons. Sometimes you have a, a tight airway, you know, maybe you have a little mucus plugging or whatever. Maybe you have bronchospasm, so it's hard to get those breaths in. Maybe it's a true problem of the plateau pressure, um, and the most common one is obesity. You have a very large patient, every breath may have a high plateau pressure. Now, these are all things you may want to manage on their own. Some of them you may not be able to, like obesity, some you may. But in no case is 
not ventilating the patient an improvement. So the first step is to stabilize them. And this is actually pretty easy to recognize because if you look at the ventilator and every breath is pegged at the same pressure limit. And it's helpful to know what it is set at on the ventilator, but if every breath is stuck at the same high pressure, it's probably that number, in this case, 40. And then if you look at your tidal volumes and they're low, there's very few things that cause a high pressure and a low tidal volume. You know, low everything, maybe the vent's disconnected. High everything, maybe they're agitated. But a high pressure and a low volume is pretty diagnostic of this problem. And it's very easy to manage. You just turn up that limit, whatever that alarm is and you'll immediately see higher tidal volumes coming back out. If you go from 40 to 50, now their pressures go from 40 to 50, and their volumes go from 100 to 300. Then you go from 50 to 55, and now you're getting their full volumes. And that you've just diagnosed that problem and managed it. Now then you can think about, am I worried about these high pressures, or do I think they're acceptable for this patient? But that I think is the, that specific problem and more importantly, kind of that approach to the crashing patient on the ventilator. Take them off, bag them, run through these kind of dopes problems and try to manage it. Yeah, that's good. I, I, am not, I was not, had not been familiar with that, um, what you just described, the, the, the pressure limit um, causing that apnea. Um, so that's, that's good to know. You know, once you, once you start recognizing it, I swear you'll see it all the time. And a lot of the time, it, you know, people manage it with, oh, say, sedation, maybe go into some other mode, and they kind of muddle by. But, I mean, people, patients can crash because they're not getting ventilated, in some cases hardly at all. And it's really not uncommon, I've found. So it's good to keep an eye out for it. And I should say that it's really a problem of usually volume control. In pressure modes, you can have the same problem, but you are setting the pressure yourself. So you should be aware of whatever that limit is. The exception maybe is uh, PRVC or whatever it's called on your ventilator, um, volume regulated modes, dual control modes. Um, these are modes where you have a volume sort of goal, but it's a pressure controlled breath. It, this can absolutely happen there because the vent is titrating the pressures to hit your volumes and you could easily hit your limit. Right, we use a lot of PRVC um... And, and we get the, uh, the alarm that goes off that says, uh, let me see, what is it called? What does it say? Uh, pressure, pressure regulated volume or something like something along those lines, basically like, like what you just said, right? That, that we're reaching peak pressures and I'm cutting off the volume early and you should know that I'm cutting off the volume early. Um, so I guess I have seen this and just haven't re recognized it before because it's never been, I've never seen it where it's consistent and uh, the volumes are low enough that you know, I worry too much about it. Most of the time I just kind of go in and tweak a couple of things and get their peak pressures down and there we go. So, yeah, I almost think it's worse on PRVC specifically because a lot of people already don't understand PRVC. It's kind of a mysterious mode to them. They think it's volume control or something else. So then when you add on this kind of poorly understood phenomenon, they're, they're totally at a loss. Yeah. All right. So that's kind of a, a handful of common, uh, dyssynchrony events that I think we come across. As just a general approach, I think the things to remember are, first of all, you know, you start with your ABCs. You can put on your thinking cap and get fancy with diagnosing these, but if you have a patient who's actually becoming hypoxic or hypotensive or whatever, you start by managing that, and I think we're usually pretty good at doing that. Um, then you can try to troubleshoot, and only after you sort of fail at that, whether because you don't understand it or you know the problem and there's nothing you can do about it, 
then think about things like sedation. And that will happen. You can't always fix this. Sometimes you can't even figure it out. And that's true, I think, even if you think you're pretty clever. Um, patients are just kind of complicated. And if you go out and start to look for these things, you'll find that. Often there's multiple problems, things like that. Um, I think you should try. Try to avoid sedation. Sometimes you'll have to. Sometimes you just won't really get what's going on. But I think it is worth trying uh, for the reasons we discussed. Patient comfort, limiting sedation, improving your own understanding, um, probably for lung protectiveness. Um, and then finally, most synchrony is the patient fighting the ventilator. So as a default, going to a more patient-focused mode often helps. From volume control to, say, pressure control, that helps match flow. From pressure control to pressure support, you know, helps match things like the duration of the breath. Um, even if you don't totally get the, what the problem was, that will often help with it. Yeah, I think, um, and sometimes, like you said, sometimes it's it's sciency and there's rationale, and sometimes it's just sort of what works, right? Um, the other day I had a patient that um, my, we had to intubate. They were had coded intubating the patient. It's a difficult intubation. Um, and then I'm sort of running the code while I have an anesthesia colleague intubates the patient and my attending's there. Um, and then when we everything's settled down and we're leaving the room, I happen to look down and see that the patient's in um, SIMV, which is a mode that we almost never use. I mean, I, I can count on one hand in a year probably the number of times that I have a patient that we choose to put on SIMV. If we see it, typically it's because some other service was managing it that uses that more routinely or something and we took over from them or something like that. Uh, and so I asked my attending, hey, just out of curiosity, why SIMV? And her response was, I don't know, she seemed to like it. You know, we tried PRVC, she wasn't digging it. We tried pressure control, she wasn't digging it. We put, a, put her on SIMV and everything got better. Uh, and so sometimes I think that's, as crazy as it sounds, that's the answer, right? Is we tried this and that patient likes it. And I don't have a real good reason for why, um, but they settled down and improved. Yeah. And if you had to guess, you know, SIMV is sort of in between uh, a control mode and pressure support, especially with a lower set rate. Most of the breaths are really patient controlled. So you have all those benefits there. And I think a lot of people are more comfortable with that because at least there is something of a backup rate in there. Even though on most ventilators now, pressure support also offers backup breaths. Um, but yeah, that is, a, a, I think, a common approach, kind of partway give control back to the patient. But I think you're totally right. No one is so good at this that they can always diagnose the problem and prescribe the elegant response, really just like in the rest of medicine. How often do we not quite understand what we're doing, but it's still kind of working? Right. I um I joke a lot of times that one of the dirty secrets of critical care is how much we are just making up as we go along. Um, and sometimes I think, gosh, I, I hope people never find this secret out, you know, that the number of times that literally we're just sort of guessing at things and seeing how they work out and then tweaking from there. <laughs> on that uplifting note, <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on this, Brian? No, I think we, we covered it pretty well. I think... I mean, I think there's a lot of potential um, types of dyssynchrony and causes for dyssynchrony, but I think we covered, you know, the common ones that you're likely to encounter. And, uh, and especially, I think, you know, like anything else we talk about, what's really important is to understand what to do in an emergency 
um, and what to do just in order to buy yourself time to think through something a little deeper, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just sort of its own whole field of study, and you can choose to get really into it or not. Um, as you said, the most important thing is to be able to stabilize the patient. I do think that there is a kind of subtle benefit here in that when we look in a room and the ventilator looks all crazy and the patient doesn't look good, and we just we have no real approach to that, it's kind of a black box. I think that kind of undermines our our own sense of being able to you know control the setting of critical care. You know, the ventilator shouldn't be a mystery as much as possible. Uh, it should be something that's controllable and deterministic. Um, and there will always be times that you're baffled, but I think it's good to try to limit them. Right. Uh, I'll also sit, I'll put in a plug here for um, what I think can potentially be one of the most underutilized resources in the ICU, and that's the respiratory therapist. Uh, a good respiratory therapist can really help you out in situations like this. Um, and, you know, it, like anybody else in the world, it's variable. But I have worked with some RTs who just really know this stuff backwards and forwards and really read the literature and dive into study and um, have done a lot of work with, with this sort of thing, and they know those ventilators. Um, and so sometimes it's very helpful just to get them to say, you know, weigh in here. What do you think? What, what do you want to try? Yeah, absolutely. And especially when it comes to that just hands-on practical sense of finding something that works. I mean, nobody has spent as much time tweaking the vent in front of a patient to try to you know, help them get along than the respiratory therapists. All right. Um, I think that'll be it then. Um, I do encourage everyone to try to take a look at the images for this post on the website. Um, you'll see both the ones we referenced and also some, uh, some clearer diagram descriptions of these waveform findings, which I think will probably make it a lot clearer. So check that out if you can. And otherwise, we'll see you back in a couple weeks.